Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His Church. Now, here's today's sermon. Lord Jesus, we ask right now that as we open Your Word, that You would work through it. We know that this Word is living and breathing. It's active. It's sharper than two-edged sword to pierce the heart of sinners and It's useful for correction, encouragement, and we ask God that you would use it for those purposes as you see fit now. Pray blessing over this time, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to grab the hardback Bibles in the seat in front of you or in front of your neighbor, and I think it will be on page 809 if you're using those Bibles. Last week, we started the Sermon on the Mount with an overview sermon. We read the whole Sermon on the Mount, and we looked at it in kind of a 40,000-foot view, bird's-eye view of what is this sermon all about. And now, really for the next few months, interrupted by Advent and Christmas, for the next few months, we're going to be going through this glorious sermon, verse by verse, taking our time through it. So starting today, we're going to read the first few words of this sermon. So let me read... From the offset, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Going through verse 12 right now for context. This is what the Word of God says. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. You know, whenever you take a preaching class, one of the things that they talk about is how to start a sermon well. What's your opening line? What's your hook to really grab their attention? Early on, there's a lot of opinions on this. Do you start with a joke? Really get them laughing and buttered up? Do you maybe just tell a a good attention-grabbing story? Gets them sitting on the edge of their seat. Do you 
say a bold claim that piques their interest and makes them ponder for a second? Do I believe in that? Do I agree with that statement? Laying in bed last night, thinking through this sermon, I, I've never before used, uh, like, there, there's different websites that you can go for, like, helping you write a sermon. Sometimes you can just buy a sermon, and, uh, well, I won't get into that. But I've never, never utilized anything like that, and uh, so I, I just Googled, laying in bed last night, opening lines for sermons, just to see, like, what are people buying for sermons? These are a couple that I took note of. Preacher comes up, stands at the pulpit and says, where do dreams go when they die? I have no idea what that is leading into, but that was one of them. Made me scratch my head. This one, preacher walks up and says, Jesus was Jewish. Yes, that was on one of the websites. This one's my favorite here. (laughs) I can't even imagine. I don't even know where this sermon would go. Preacher walks up. So the congregation says, have you ever had a stain you can't get out? Friendships can be like that. Again, I don't know what the text is. That was just one of the recommended opening lines. I think I'll stick with writing my own sermons. You'll likely be surprised how Jesus opens his sermon on Sermon on the Mount because I don't think he took a homiletics course, a course on preaching, and he certainly doesn't open with a joke or an attention-grabbing story. We'll get into how he starts, but I would guess it's not what most preaching professors would recommend today. But before we get into what Jesus said, the text starts with actually who he's speaking to. Not what, but who. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. Okay, now let's just pause and consider, not, don't rush to what he says, verse 3, but who he's saying it to, it matters. It matters. We see that Jesus, Jesus is accommodating the crowds by making sure they can hear. That's why he goes up the side of the mountain. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. So he uses the, the geography around to amplify his voice so that they can hear. He goes up high so they can, they can hear him. Okay, so he accommodates the crowd Makes it easy for them to hear, but he's speaking to the disciples. His sermon is for his disciples, not the crowd, primarily. And we can see that very clearly through the rest of the sermon, can't we? I'll give you a couple examples. Matthew 5, if you just jump to verse 13 and 14. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Could you imagine him saying that just to some random person he knows nothing about? No, he's speaking to the Christians. You're the salt. You're the light. My disciples. Even maybe more clearly, 5.16, just a few verses later, let your light shine before others, i.e. the crowd down there, so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father 
who's in heaven. He is speaking to Christians, though accommodating the crowd. In other words, this sermon is not instructions for becoming a Christian. They're instructions to those who already are Christians. And I think that's important, church, because that should then seep into how we have our worship services here. That should impact how I preach right here. Right? We invite unbelievers to join. We, in fact, welcome and we encourage and we hope that they would come. All people. We accommodate for them. We're mindful of them. But the Sunday gathering is primarily for the saints. To strengthen them, to encourage them, to build them up and prepare them for the week ahead. The service is for the saints. And this makes sense biblically, doesn't it? A shepherd's calling is to what? Tend to the sheep. The church's calling is to go and make disciples of every nation. Let's not get those two roles and their functions confused, as so many people do, right? How many, how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I got him in the door. It's the pastor's job to tell him about Jesus. Don't confuse the role and the function. I am not the church. We are the church. Together, we make disciples. My particular calling as the pastor or the shepherd, as it plays out on Sunday, is to primarily tend to the sheep. That the sheep could go out and be the church. And so that's what we see Jesus does here. We see first who he's speaking to, but after who he's speaking to, what he says to the church. He starts his sermon, again, not in a way that I think most preaching professors would recommend. He He starts with what we call the Beatitudes now, but a list of blessings over the disciples, the saints. It's called the Beatitudes, which is another word for a great blessing spoken. We're going to split these Beatitudes into two weeks, today and next Sunday, because I think they're naturally split down the middle in the nature of the Beatitudes themselves. The first four, I think, are a certain kind of blessing, and the the last four are other kind of blessing. The first half today, verses 1 through, or 3 through 6, would be this theme of restoration. This theme of restoration. You'll see when we read it again that we are poor in spirit, and He gives us an inheritance, or He gives us a kingdom. We are, we mourn, and He comforts. We are humble We are hungry and we thirst and He satisfies. There's this theme of restoring a broken people. God takes our insufficiencies and He brings good out of it. The second half of, I think, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 7 through 12, would be a theme of replication. Not restoration, but replication. That is to say that God makes a people who are just like Him in nature. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. 
see God replicates in his people a heart much like his, as he is merciful, pure in heart, and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Today, though, I want to focus on the first, the Beatitudes of restoration. Restoration. This work of God in taking something, could you say inadequate, insufficient, and making much of it, taking what is little and making something great from it, that, that theme is all over the Bible. That might be one of the greatest themes of the whole biblical narrative. He takes the bread of a small child. It's all that he has. And what's Jesus do with it? He multiplies it that even 5,000 people couldn't even finish it off. It's too much. It's too much for them to handle. He would take a cup and make it overflowing. He takes an unknown town and he brought a Savior out of it. He took an army of 300 people and stepped on a massive army like it was an ant. He takes us, broken sinners, unworthy, and he makes us royal ambassadors for the King of Kings. Why? Why is this such a big theme to God that he would take what is little and make much of it? And it's because he's concerned for his glory and his name being made known. All of that is so that he would make much of himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 helps us understand this a little bit. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, so to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He takes what is low and conquers that what is big, so that we could only say that's only possible through the power of God. That's a massive theme in the Bible. And this work of God and taking broken things and fixing them or healing, making much of these broken things, it's, it's evident in the first half of the Beatitudes. Let me read verses 3 through 6 again. These are the verses we'll look at today. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We're going to take these one at a time. God, speak, God speaks blessing to Christians. Because this is describing Christians, by the way. And he says, they are blessed for one, firstly, they are poor in spirit. What in the world does that mean? Well, we know what poor is, right? Some of us really know what poor is. Blessed are the poor, but not financially poor, those who are spiritually poor. So spiritually poor would be speaking to our merit before God. We got nothing. Got nothing. I come before the throne of the King of Kings and I am in rags. I've got nothing to stand before God. 
with in and of myself. So if we were to read maybe the world's Beatitudes, (laughs) blessed are those who are self-made, self-confident, prideful. For them, the sky is the limit. Jesus is the exact opposite. He says, no, blessed. (laughs) This is how we, this is right out the gate. This is the first words he speaks. Right out the gate, he hits them with a hard truth. You will be blessed when you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. Preaching professors like, oh, Jesus, no. That's what he hits them out the gate with. You'll be blessed when you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God. I think he starts the Sermon on the Mount with this. Because knowing your depravity is the very foundation for the gospel itself, meaning anything to you. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, there's no good news for you. The Pharisees, they thought they were spiritually elite. They had much to offer God, and what happened? God rejected them. John the Baptist, on the other hand, he says, I am unworthy to tie even his sandals. And Jesus says, there's no greater than John. I love this quote from Paul Washer. It says, never in my life has God been glorified the way God ought to be glorified. I have never for a single moment loved God the way God ought to be loved. Paul Washer knows his sinful state, his depravity, his spiritual impoverishment. And God has blessing to offer those who know they're spiritually poor. He gives them riches laid laid aside in heaven, the riches of his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that they may be co-heirs with Christ. I mean, this is the Bible's edition of the Disney's Aladdin, right? You ever seen it? You know what I'm talking about? The spiritual panhandler turns to royalty, riding in on a massive elephant. The street rat, he's given the kingdom and the beautiful bride. This is Disney Aladdin's, but Bible edition. God would take the poor and he would give them a kingdom. The only difference is with Aladdin is this. This isn't by the power of a genie and it's not a sham. It's the real deal and it's by the incredible generosity of a loving God. And so this is the first beatitude that he says, being poor in spirit is the foundation. This is why he starts with it. Knowing your depravity, knowing that you're spiritually poor is the foundation for all the following or subsequent blessings. He secondly says, blessed are the, those who mourn. Christian, hear me. You should be well acquainted with mourning. If you know that you're poor in spirit, what naturally follows? You mourn. You mourn. We grieve 
because we are spiritually poor. It's my sin that would lead to my precious Savior dying on a cross. That's my fault. That's my doing. That's your doing. We know our sin, therefore we grieve. Therefore we mourn. So there's two paradoxical realities simultaneously occurring within the Christian at all times. Christians ought to be the most joyful people there are because we have the most reason to celebrate. Paradoxically and simultaneously, we should be well acquainted with mourning if we really know how horrible of sinners we are. It's almost like Paul knew what he was talking about through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, can I say something uh, many might need to hear? I think the average Christian I'm not going to speak all Christians. The average Christian, the majority of Christians, need to mourn less about their hardships and mourn more about their sin. Not the struggles of finances, not the arguments that you're having at home, not the, not the troubles at work, the frustrating coworker. Sure, yeah, bring that to the Lord because He cares about that. But hear me, he cares more about the state of your soul. Mourn more about your sin than about your hardships. We should resemble the man in Luke 18 that was beating his chest because he knew the reality of his sin. But so often, guys, I don't resemble that man. I mourn more about my, my, my circumstances than I do about my own depravity. I'm more heartbroken about situations than about who Isaac is. Let me say this too. We shouldn't just mourn our consequences of sins. Mourn the sin itself. Mourn the very sin itself that it's remaining in your life. So many of us don't care until it starts to affect our lives, until somebody finds out about it. Right now, oh, I'm sick to my stomach about my sin. No, you're sick to your stomach about your consequences of your sin. Be sick about your sin. Be sick about your sin and the sin itself. And when we are grieving or mourning our sin, God meets us with blessing. For he brings comfort to us, like a balm to a wound. You might say, how in the world could I have confidence in my salvation? How could I, because I'm sinning, how, how could I have any kind of comfort? I see my sin. Comfort's the last thing I feel. Let me tell you what my comfort is when I see Isaac's sin. Full view. My comfort is that when I fall, all the time, I have a Savior who loves me and who didn't get down off that cross. That's my comfort. My comfort is not in Isaac's ability or Isaac's strength or Isaac's abstinence. All of that should be. 
But that's not where my comfort's found. My comfort is found in the Savior who's already secured my salvation. And in that I find incredible comfort. Let me say that the, the opposite or the reverse is true as well. If you grieve your sin, you will be met with comfort. If you celebrate your sin, you will not be comforted. I say it this way. You will either mourn sin now and find comfort for eternity, or you'll be comfortable with your sin now and mourn for eternity. Did you hear that? Please hear that. You'll either mourn your sin now and you'll find comfort for all of eternity or you will be comfortable with your sin now and you will mourn for all of eternity. The work of God and all of His saints, all of His saints, is that we would mourn how poor in spirit we are. And God meets us with comfort when we do. Thirdly, Christians not only are poor in spirit and therefore mourn, but Christians are meek. Blessed are the meek. You could say humble. Meek's kind of a hard word, isn't it? Like, what ex- I don't really know what that's talking about. What is meek? Well, the same Greek word is used to describe Christ when he's riding in on a donkey. So, he was meek at that moment. You could say humble, modest, Right? You ever heard the term, I'm from humble upbringings? I'm talking about? I'm from meek upbringings. Jesus didn't ride in on a donkey like Aladdin, by the way. He rode in on a donkey. Humble. Humble. And again, this blessing should be rooted in us knowing that we are poor in spirit. Right? I know my depravity, therefore I mourn it, but also I'm humble before God. I have nothing to boast in but Christ himself. I really appreciate what Sinclair Ferguson said. I think it gets to the heart of it. He says, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. Do you think you deserve heaven? It's a question to really think about. Would you be offended that God would send anyone to hell? That's prideful to think that God doesn't have that prerogative or that that's not what we deserve. Humility would tell us we don't deserve heaven, we deserve hell. Yet so many people fit the description of thinking they deserve heaven. Offended that God would ever send anyone to hell. And God has good news for the humble Christian, the meek Christian. An unending inheritance. Think about that. Humble upbringings, wait for your inheritance. Humble, you're going to get incalculable, amazing amounts of inheritance from God. You get everything, the earth, all of it. 
Imagine the shock of his audience. I want to think about it because just think about it. The crowd's still listening. And this is the opposite of what we're always told, isn't it? The humble come out on top. The humble win. No, 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 no. Right? Survival of the fittest. Not the humble. They're doormats. They're going to get walked over. They're the ones that we climb over to inherit the earth. Jesus says, no. It's the humble one who wins, who gets the inheritance of the earth. The world says, no, 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 no. The guy who's winning in the world is the self-made CEO, right? You need grit to make it in life. What's it mean to make it in life? Jesus would say, you need to be meek, humble, ride in on a donkey to quote-unquote make it. The opposite of what the world says, how in the world could the humble possibly come out on top in the end? Well, it's because Christians don't win by working for it, but by trusting a God who already worked for us. We don't win because we're self-made. We inherit the earth because He made us and He takes care of us. And I'm just a humble recipient of grace. Lastly, the Christian is one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Jesus blesses them in verse 6. And again, this is rooted in the first one. Because we know our sinfulness, because we are poor in spirit, we mourn our sin, we're humble before God, and we long for a change. We desire, we crave to be better, to be holier for God. Poverty not only makes one mourn his humble condition, poverty makes him long for it to be different. And I love that Jesus uses the imagery of hunger and thirst because that is a universal human experience. We all have hungered. We all have felt thirst. And he says, that's how you should feel about changing your sin and being holy. Wow. And that can be convicting, can it? Think about this. This is a representation or this is a description of a real Christian. Do you get a pit in your stomach about your sin? Do you long to be holy? Do you crave to get past that sin in your life? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And when we do, God satisfies those who long for it. He's the fount of living water, isn't He? That we can unendingly drink from. How might He satisfy us? Well, two quick ways. First, He makes it possible that you can see growth today, right now, through His Holy Spirit. You hunger, you thirst for righteousness because the Holy Spirit gave you those desires. He will satisfy you that you can, you can break that sin, 
get over it, beat it, put it in the grave, and walk in righteousness. Maybe you feel like that's not possible because you've been addicted to whatever you've been addicted to for 20-something years. You don't even remember what life is like without that. Hear me. God satisfies our craving for righteousness, in part by making it possible in this life. But then perfectly in all of eternity, what we hunger for will come to perfect fruition on the other side of heaven where you will not struggle with temptation. You will not struggle with craving that what you shouldn't crave. (laughs) Can you just imagine? Think about that. One day you will be free from all of that. (laughs) How amazing will that be? God satisfies our craving, our longing for righteousness. So, how do I want to end today? All of these signs, all of these descriptions or attributes, they're tell signs for true faith in a person's life. Did you hear that? All of these attributes are tell signs for true faith in a person's life. Knowing your poor in spirit, mourning your sin, humbly approaching God, hungering for righteousness, these are the tell signs of real faith. And so, ask yourself, please, Be honest with yourself. Do you genuinely mourn your sin? Do you hate your sin? Does it make you sick? Does it put a pit in your gut? Not the thought of the consequences, but the sin itself. Or do you love it? Do you long? Do you desire to grow in holiness? Your answer matters tremendously. If you would say yes to that. Yes, I hate my sin. Yes, I want to be freed from it. Even if you're gripped by sin and you're wrestling with it today, hear me, that godly desire is foreign from you and it's only by the power of God in you. That's a blessed assurance of your salvation. That's God in you. That's not you. So be encouraged. If you desire for holiness, if you hate your sin, there is assurance of salvation in that. But if you'd say no, no, honestly, I don't hate my sin. No, I really don't want to change. First, I would say, There's no benefit in lying to yourself. You're only fooling yourself. You're not going to fool God at the end of life. It doesn't help you to tell yourself you hate your sin, you love righteousness, when you really don't. You're only lying to yourself. So be honest with yourself. It starts with being incredibly aware of your sinfulness, that you are poor in spirit, and then from that, all the rest follows. You can't mourn your sin if you don't see your sin. You can't long for a change 
if you don't see a need for change, start with thinking about how impoverished spiritually you are and all the rest will follow. God working in you that you would hate it, that you would mourn it, that you'd crave for goodness. May God do, all, do that work in all of our lives today that we might all grow in holiness. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.